Hello and welcome to Great Ridge Station. I'm your host, Sam Helgerson, and I'm pretty much a fixture around these parts. Thanks for stopping in on your way through. Season 3, Episode 7. Welcome back. Last time around, we introduced you to a bunch of the kinds of people in your neighborhood. The creators, critics, sustainers, collectors, joiners, spectators, and inactives. Well, chances are, they're all there. I had a conversation with a leader who'd made a significant move from one organization to another, and she made the observation that the people are all the same, but their names and faces have changed. There are a thousand different personality tests that slice and dice us into different categories. So let's talk about that for a moment. To be fair, that list that I came up with, well, at least the creators, collectors, and joiners, came from a source that I read about 15 years ago. I winnowed my library a lot since then, and I have no idea who to give credit to. But I've built on it over the years. Critics, sustainers, spectators, and inactives came from my own work. And over the years, I've seen other people add to that discussion. You see, it's good to know these categories, and they can be helpful in your work. But I want to encourage you toward two things. Know the kind of leadership you need to apply to lead each category well. And second, get to know the real people in those categories. And not necessarily in that order. If your practice of leadership begins and ends with uh, sorting people into various categories so you can figure them out, well, I'm sorry, you're probably going to fail as a leader. That doesn't mean that labels can't be helpful. They can, but don't forget that there is a real person behind that label. I worked in one company where every area of specialty looked down on the others. It got into this kind of weird cycle of they're nots. They're not an engineer. They're not in marketing. They're not in software development. However you look at it, that's not very helpful. So with that caveat, let's look at each of these categories and talk about the kind of leadership they need. First of all, creators. As noted the last time around, creators are the ones that make things happen and jump right in. There are three things that creators need in order to engage fully. First of all, a safety net. Creators need a place to fail safely. This is important because they need to know that leaders have their back. No one can be innovative or creative without the ability to fail. It's your job as a leader to limit the pain of a failure. You want them to learn from failure, but you don't want failure to break them. Your job is to provide that safety net, and that means you need to be aware of their work and their needs in that work. Next is flexibility. Creators do not fare well in a typical 8 to 5 desk job. Their best hours of the day may not be during business hours, and if you try to force them into that mold, it's likely to tap all of the innovation out of them. Provide them with the flexibility, the resources, and accountability that they need to thrive. And be aware that they may not work the same way as you do. Clear direction, based on clear values, is also important for creators. They need to know the reason that their creativity is important. They need to have a direction in order to innovate forward. Now, I use that term because I've seen people innovate backwards, do things that move the company away from its goals. Make sure your creators know where they're going and why getting there is important. 
This is the mission and vision conversation. Innovation and novelty is not necessarily a virtue. So help your creators align their work with what matters most. For the sake of this discussion, creators are not the same thing as creatives. But there are some commonalities, some nuances, I guess. Well, Todd Henry has written a helpful book on leading creatives called Herding Tigers. And you might find it helpful if you deal with creators who are also creatives. Now let's move on to the critics. Ah, the beloved critics. I've used this line for years. This is why there will be suggestion boxes in heaven. Some people aren't happy unless they have something to complain about. Eh, that's a bit unfair. But there are two different types of critics, as I call them, the bitter and the sweet. For the bitter critic, nothing will ever be right, because the problem is inside them. If you have a bitter critic, it could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're the victim of some kind of workplace injustice. Maybe they've endured a lot in life, and it shows up at work. And maybe, maybe they're just jerks. Bitter critics need some tending and some compassionate leadership. But if they can't be fixed, if they can't be brought out of their bitterness... You may need to weed them out of the garden. You may need to initiate, how should we put it, a retroactive hiring freeze. You may need to manage them out of your team, your department, or your organization. And the reason one bitter critic can spoil the whole group, you can't afford to wound your other colleagues by protecting one bitter critic. Now, not all critics are bitter, though. Some are just wired up to see what could be better. The good-hearted ones I call the sweet critics. Sweet critics need to be heard because they have some ideas on how to improve life and work. And the best example I've heard comes from some family members who used to work for IBM back in the big, big iron mainframe glory days. Back then, IBM had formal suggestion boxes. You could drop a slip of paper in the box with your suggestion on it, and the leadership team would actively consider them. The best ones would be implemented. The way IBM set this up, you could provide your suggestions anonymously. But if you provided your name and department information, they would reward you with a financial incentive based on the value of the business improvement. Save the company money? Get cash. Improve profitability? Get cash. This was one way that the, that the company was able to tap into the insights of the sweet critics. Let them be heard, and let those critics benefit everyone. I suppose if I wanted to, I could go too far and talk about salty critics, sour critics, and even umami critics, but I won't do that. Let's move on to sustainers. As I said last week, the sustainers are the workhorses of organizations. They keep things moving, and the best of them do so with efficiency and effectiveness. Under most circumstances, sustainers need little leadership. Uh, as they used to say, they just plug along and make steady progress. They tend to be change-averse, which means that unless you provide good leadership during times of change, they will not follow the new ways of doing things. The main things that sustainers sustain is culture. And these are the people that Peter Drucker was referring to when he said, "'Culture eats strategy for breakfast.'" See, sustainers need to be led carefully into the unknown. They need oversight, supervision, encouragement, and, and motivation. Give them that, and they're likely to follow and become champions of the new frontier. Well, how about collectors? 
The collectors can be the advocates for change simply because they thrive on new learning. They're not the creators, but they can best be described as maybe the first followers. These folks are easy to identify. They're the first to take on new responsibilities, learn new skills, and so on. I will say this. The greatest challenge that leaders face with collectors is in letting them get bored. A bored collector goes in directions that aren't helpful, and they wind up getting discouraged and turning into the inactives. You see, for them, it's always nice to keep a little tray of learning hors d'oeuvres available for them. Offer them opportunities to contribute and get them involved in various communities of practice. See, it's your job as a leader to keep them engaged and collecting and putting their knowledge to use. Next up are the joiners. You may not find this comforting, but you cannot lead these people on your own. Remember, these are the ones who require a certain level of social gravity in order to follow. They tend to follow the crowd. So for this reason, you need to keep them close to the sustainers and the collectors and far away from the critics. Joiners tend to exhibit whatever culture they happen to soak in. So the best leadership you can provide is to surround them with good influences. As individuals, they tend not to follow leadership per se, but they are led by the consensus of the majority. It may not even be the majority. It's the perceived majority. Leaders can only influence this. You cannot control it. The next group are the spectators. Remember, these are the folks who are there for the show. They'll be involved and active, but their primary concern is that they don't want to miss anything. And the best way to tap into this group is to use them to feed the creators. They may not know what to do, but they know what's going on. You need them because they're the historians and the the documentarians of the team or the stakeholders that they're most in contact with. You know, if they have line of sight to customers, well, they know what's happening with those customers. They know what they like. They know what they dislike. They know what they wish for from your products and services. See, Spectators are not critics. They're not looking for fault or people to blame. They simply pay attention to what they see, which is better than most people. As I said, these people have line of sight to the people they interact with. So use them, like I said, to feed the creators. Let their observations and analysis provide the starting point for innovation. As a leader, you need to know that these people tend to be pretty content. They have stories to tell, yes. But remember, they're there for the show. Your job is to listen to their stories and use what you learn to lead your organization forward. You can't get those stories from a spectator unless they know and trust you. Remember, they're watching you, too. There's nothing wrong with that, but insecure leaders might find it intimidating. You have to be strong enough to face that and still like them and trust them. Finally, we move on to the inactives. Anything I say here could sound like a criticism, and I don't intend it that way. These are the people who have actively checked out. Maybe that's due to boredom, to fatigue, or that their skills are not being put to use. By the time people become inactives, they've already made their decision. It would be difficult to woo them back into another category. Often, these people are waiting to leave until the right opportunity comes up elsewhere. Sometimes, they hang around not even trying to look busy. 
See, this is not always a bad thing, and it's not always dysfunctional. That's why this one is so tricky. These people are not evil. They're just done. We have a friend who shared that her employer was going to be rolling out a new computer system. And for years, she'd been a collector. She'd been in that role of kind of super technology user uh, through a lot of changes. But this time, though, she asked when the new systems were going to roll out. And she said, that will be my last day. She was done. And she made the decision that she did not want to be that super tech person even one more time. See, it's easy for me to tell you how to manage these groups, but please hear this. These are all real people, individuals, and they defy categorization in so many ways. As I said in part one, no one is pure to type. If you want to lead, you have to actually know the people, build relationships, and help them move forward, depending on where you are in the organizational chart and how large the team is, but remember your limits. See, you can only provide close leadership for a team of about 20 people or less. Yes, you can oversee larger departments, but there are limits. See, it's telling that Jesus chose a group of 12 with three people in his inner circle. Yeah, there were many more who followed him, but he invested mostly in that small group of 12, the people he knew best and led most. Now, I hope you found this helpful in thinking about your own gaggle of creators, critics, sustainers, collectors, joiners, spectators, and inactives. That's about it for this time around, so get out there and get to know the real live people in your neighborhood. Thanks for joining us at Great Ridge Station. All content is developed by Dr. Sam Helgerson with appropriate citations of outside sources. Our sound engineer is Brick Martin. All background and bumper media is in the public domain and retrieved from archive.org. The opening music is from Guy Lombardo, Down by the River. The closing music is from Annunzio Montavani, Skyscraper Fantasy. I'm already looking forward to your next visit to Great Ridge Station. Bye-bye.